I'm Noah Lowy for N Equals One, a podcast about science and discovery at UC San Diego. In each episode, we bring you the story of one project, one discovery, or one scientist. Today on N Equals One, I'm talking to Dr. Susan Hopkins, a professor of medicine and radiology at UC San Diego who is doing some pretty interesting research which has implications in sports and exercise physiology. I talked to her about some of her research, some challenges she's encountered in her career, and how her work can be applied to athletics. So here is Dr. Hopkins. So I'm a professor of medicine and radiology, and my current research involves using um, MRI to uh, image the lungs and understand basic fundamental mechanisms about how the lung works. Mm -hmm. And I'm particularly interested in the lung under conditions of stress. Mm -hmm. So the way that we stress the lung is we exercise people, um, we take them to high altitude. I have a little bit of an interest in diving physiology. I haven't really published on that much. Mm -hmm. um, but mostly the conditions of hypoxia, low oxygen, mm -hmm. which you get from going to altitude and exercise. So what sparked your interest in that? Well, I started out as a family doctor when mm -hmm. I got out of medical school. And the medical school I went to at that time was fairly new, and the research programs weren't very well developed. So I ended up, um, I'm from Canada, and I was in British Columbia. Mm -hmm. And I, as an intern, we had a, a ski cabin at Whistler and I fell in love with the mountains and I spent a lot of time ski mountaineering and um, working as a family doctor and then skiing whatever opportunity that I could. And I started to get um, a little too challenged by family medicine because I was working in a town of 2,000 people mm -hmm. and I was either bored to tears or scared to death and there wasn't much in between so you would see little kids with you know runny noses and earaches and mm. then there would be some guy that had been hit by a log that he was trying to you know yeah. he was cutting down a tree and he'd been flattened by a log and um, if I wanted to give somebody a blood transfusion I had to call in a donor and get the lab tech to type and cross match this was you know, early 80s, rural British Columbia. And people would say, well, you know, it's, you can always get the life flight, but that takes a long time. By the time you stabilize somebody and pack and ship them for the airport and get them up there and get them shipped to Vancouver, you're talking three or four or five hours, which is a long time mm -hmm. to get somebody to a tertiary care center. So I decided to go back to school and do sports medicine. Um, and so I did a fellowship in sports medicine at the University of British Columbia, which was the first program in North America where you could specialize in sports medicine for primary care sports medicine. And as part of their program, they wanted us to do graduate work, a master's degree in some aspect of exercise science. and. So I chose exercise physiology, and the first week I was in the lab, I thought, this is fantastic. I just love this. You know, I like reading and writing and thinking. I like 
coming up with ideas and going, I wonder if this is because of this, and then designing an experiment to test it, and then finding out if you're right when you've got all that data and you run it through a statistical package and you see the answer. It's like opening Christmas presents. Well, sometimes the Christmas presents aren't great, but you know some of the most important breakthroughs we've made or not when you're right, but when you're wrong and you go, hmm, that's funny. I wonder what would explain that unexpected finding. What were some of those breakthroughs? One of them is I'm very interested in a condition called high altitude pulmonary edema or HAPE. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever seen the cheesy movie Vertical Limit, um, yeah. <laughs> you can probably get it on Netflix. I don't recommend it. <laughs> it's pretty bad. but. Um, the, the basic problem with HAPE is that you get, you can be perfectly normal. Mm -hmm. You go rapidly to high altitude and all of a sudden your lungs just fill up for flu with fluid for no apparent reason. And so there, have been, there has been a lot of interest in understanding why this happens because there are other conditions in medicine where people's lungs will fill up with fluid. One is called acute lung injury. Um, it's also called um, ARDS, adult respiratory or acute respiratory distress syndrome. And in that case, people have a variety of insults. They could be in a car accident or they could have a pneumonia or they could um, aspirate fluid, but all of a sudden their lungs just fill up with fluid. And in high altitude pulmonary edema, what's really interesting is you can be on death's door. I mean, if you get high altitude pulmonary edema and you don't go down, you are going to die. It is that severe. But if you go down 24, 48 hours later, you're fine. You're back to being this perfectly normal person. And so there's been a lot of interest in trying to understand why does somebody go from being perfectly normal to on death's door and right. back to perfectly normal? Um, and these insights may help us understand why people in the ICU get this horrible disease, which has a terrible mortality. About between 30 and 50% of those people never make it out of the intensive care unit. Wow. So it's pretty grim. Um, and so what we, we're interested in is that there's been a lot of work in trying to understand what causes the leak to happen all of a sudden. And we know that when people who have high altitude pulmonary edema are exposed to low oxygen, the pressure in the circulation in their lungs is elevated, more so than everybody. So if you go to high altitude and you breathe low oxygen, the pressure in your pulmonary circulation, your lung circulation will increase. But if you are somebody that has had high altitude pulmonary edema before, your lungs will have a higher pressure. Mm -hmm. And where it's because of something called hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction, where parts of the lung vessels constrict and that puts the pressure up. So they get this exposure to low oxygen, the vessels constrict, and that puts the pressure up. 
And we know from some research done in the Italian Alps um, by some colleagues of mine um, that what happens is that people that get high altitude pulmonary edema, so a lot of these guys that have had, or it's mostly men by the way, um, partly because women don't go to the mountains as much, but we don't know whether they might not get sick. So a lot of these people have had high altitude pulmonary edema multiple times because they still go to the mountains. They know the early signs. When they get it, they go down right away. They're really mm -hmm. careful, but they're climbers and they're not going to stop. Like a lot of people right. in sports, you know, they have their sport. So um, what they found was that when they took people that had had high altitude pulmonary edema to high altitude and had a control group, that the people that got high altitude pulmonary edema on this ascent had evidence that they had ruptured blood vessels, the capillaries in their lungs. Um, and that ties back to UCSD and John West, who showed a number of years ago that you could actually break capillaries in your lungs. And so we found that these, well, my colleagues found, not me, that, that these people had this rupture of their capillaries. So here's where the mystery comes in, mm -hmm. is where the blood vessels constrict is upstream of the capillaries. So if you, it's like if you take a garden hose and you kink mm -hmm. it, before the kink, the pressure is high. Mm -hmm. After the kink, the pressure is low. And those capillaries are after the kink. So how could you be rupturing capillaries if they were after the, the kink in your, your lung vessel hose? Mm -hmm. And years ago, um, some scientists, one was named Visser and the other was named Herb Hulkren, came up with the idea that this hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction, this constriction of blood vessels, was uneven. And so some parts would constrict and enough of the lung would constrict that that would put the pressure up. But the parts that didn't constrict were going to see all of that pressure, right, as the blood flowed through. And so that's where we came in. So what we did, and this was a number of years ago, um, with a, a radiologist named David Levin, who got me interested in all of the lung imaging that we do, um, is we got three groups of subjects. We got people that had been repeatedly high and had never been sick, not any kind of high altitude illness, and there's a few different varieties of that. We had people that had had high altitude pulmonary edema and that had been documented by a physician. So we had x-rays and we knew their clinical history. So we knew that it wasn't just somebody who got a little bit of a cough at altitude. Mm -hmm. And then we had random people who had no history of exposure to altitude at all. Like they'd never been to mammoth. You know, we had a cutoff, I think it was, you know, 5,000 feet, never mm -hmm. been above 5,000 feet. But San Diego sea level, those people are actually not that hard to find. And so we put them in the MRI scanner and we got some measurements, and we have a very interesting technique. So when you think of an MRI, if you get an MRI of your knee, we get an image of structure, right? We're looking for a torn meniscus in your knee or a torn ligament. We're imaging the structure. But what we do is image the function 
And so we are able to image blood flow. And I can image where one heartbeat's worth of blood goes in your lungs. So what we did was we put these three groups of subjects in the scanner and we gave them a low level of oxygen to breathe equivalent to 12 and a half thousand feet. And we made measurements. We made that before we made, gave them the low oxygen and then we made them at five minute intervals to see what happened. And in the people that had been to high altitude a bunch and in the normal people that had no history of altitude exposure, nothing happened. But in the people that had had high altitude pulmonary edema, their blood flow became more uneven. So the idea, it, when you made them hypoxic, gave them this low level of oxygen. So the only way that we thought that blood flow could become uneven is if they had that constriction and that constriction was uneven. And the kinks in the hose, some parts of the hose were kinked, some parts were not, so the blood flow downstream of the kinked ones would be low and the ones that, you know, that were not downstream of the kinked ones or were in the unkinked ones would be high. So on the topic of altitude, I'm sure you're familiar with the high altitude training masks that a lot of high profile athletes are using. From someone who studies altitude and how it affects the body, do these things work or are they just a gimmick? The hypoxicators? Yes, the hypoxicators, exactly. Can I roll my eyes? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that's a no. I've just been seeing many athletes using them recently and I actually saw a video of the famous boxer Anthony Joshua wearing one of those masks while doing sprints and other types of cardio training so I was just wondering if they were actually legitimate. My understanding is, and it's been a while since I looked at it, that mm -hmm. more than what they do um, in terms of making you hypoxic is that they raise your level of CO2, okay? Mm -hmm. So you could have the same effect by breathing in and out of a paper bag um, to raise your level of CO2. So I am very skeptical of that. I'll tell you another mm -hmm. thing that absolutely is a pile of hooey. Mm -hmm. Oxygenated water. I don't, you can buy oxygenated water that has a higher level of oxygen. You open that bottle and, and drink it down. I mean, the amount of extra oxygen in it is so trivial, it's not gonna do anything. Or when you see people on the sidelines of a sporting event, like football players, and they're putting the oxygen yeah. mask on and that's supposed to help them recover more quickly. That just doesn't make any sense from a physiology standpoint. Mm -hmm. So if you want to Let's, let's talk a little bit about high altitude training. Mm -hmm. um, there's two ways. To, so the, the, the consensus is that high altitude stimula stimulates your body to make more red cells. Mm -hmm. Okay, And if you have more red cells, it's stimulating your kidneys to make more erythropoietin increases your red cells. The hypoxia at high altitude does. 
it's like natural EPO, right? It's your own erythropoietin rather than a synthetic thing. So erythropoietin became very big. Blood doping was very big at one point. Um, the entire U.S. track cycling team, with the exception of one individual, blood doped for the 1984 Olympics. They won a lot of medals, but it was considered to be highly unethical by a lot of the sports community. You know, now, of course, it's banned mm -hmm. and proper thing, if you ask me. Um, but so that stimulated interest in a, a, nat a natural adaptation, which was altitude. The problem is when you go to altitude is your level of oxygen is really low. And if you're a runner, for example, and you normally run, you know, 450 miles, you go to altitude, you're not running, you know, at, at 10,000 feet, you're not running any 450 mile. You know, you're running a lot slower. And so then your biomechanics change. And then if your biomechanics change because you're staying at high altitude, when you get down to sea level, you can't run as fast even though you, as you might otherwise, even though you have the extra hemoglobin on board from your time at altitude. So there's a lot of interest in this paradigm called live high, train low, yeah. right? So you stay at a ski resort at 8,000 feet, and then you go down to the valley to train, and then you go back and spend time at high altitude. And the evidence is very convincing that that helps with athletic performance, in particular mm -hmm. events, right? And the events are the aerobic events. Mm -hmm. um, it's less clear, and there's not as much research about whether it helps with what I would call anaerobic events, sprint events. Mm -hmm. the, the, certainly, if you are at altitude, and you're a sprinter, or you're a pole vaulter, or you're a long jumper, the thin air at altitude will help you go farther because you're not really relying on oxygen for what you do. You know, mm -hmm. that, ten, you know, the 100 meter, of, you know, sprint. Mm -hmm. You're not using much oxygen in that. You're all in your anaerobic energy systems. So, but it's very clear that that works. Um, at sea level, we have altitude tents. And you for, I can't remember how much they are now, you know, they used to be about eight to $10,000. You can get a tent to put over your bed and it will lower the level of oxygen and it has a CO2 scrubber so that you, you know, don't just rebreathe CO2 all night, which would be unpleasant um, because you'd feel like you were smothering. Um, but you can buy a tent mm -hmm. and that seems to work as well. Cool. But those masks? No. No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
What other research have you done that has implications for sports and athletic training? So I'm also interested in um, a condition called exercise-induced arterial hypoxemia, mm -hmm. um, which is um, that paradoxically, ath some athletes, and they have to be highly trained, aerobic athletes, if you exercise them at maximal levels, will have low levels of oxygen in their blood. And these are people that, you know, have huge maximal oxygen uptakes. Uh, they're, you know, Olympic caliber athletes. Um, but they have, if I did a, an arterial blood gas and drew a sample from them, they would have oxygen levels that looked like they were ICU patients or patients with chronic constructive lung disease. So trying to understand the mechanisms of what causes that has been a long-standing interest of mine mm -hmm. and is what brought me to UCSD 26 years ago to work with Peter Wagner. Cool. And so um, Peter Wagner developed a technique whereby if you infused trace amounts of marker gases dissolved in saline into the blood and then measured those gases in that you infuse it in a vein and then measure it in an artery and then also measure it in the gas that you breathe out that you could evaluate the efficiency of gas exchange and what we discovered with work that i did um, at the university of british columbia as part of my phd thesis um, and work that we did in Australia and work that we did here at UCSD is that the people that get this have what we call diffusion limitation of oxygen transport in their lungs. They have such big cardiac output, so they're pushing blood through their lungs so quickly that there isn't enough time for the red blood cells to pick up all the oxygen that is available to them. And mm -hmm. so the oxygen does not have enough time to diffuse across. Mm -hmm. And we call that diffusion limitation. Mm -hmm. And I think we've shown it now pretty convincingly. Um, I'm also interested in uh, the, whether or not um, highly trained athletes um, develop pulmonary edema. So we talked mm -hmm. about the, the people with HAPE, but highly trained athletes get worsening efficiency of gas exchange, not only because of this diffusion limitation that we just talked about, mm -hmm. but because the matching of airflow and blood flow in their lungs gets worse. So why does it get worse when you exercise? And the idea is if you had fluid, your, your capillaries are like a, a, a soaker hose. Okay, they're not absolutely watertight. So you have continual exchange of fluid across the walls of the capillaries and the vessels a little bit upstream of the capillaries. And so, um, and you, you have that in every other capillary in your body too, not just in the lungs. And then your lymphatic system takes all that extra fluid and then drains it away. 
So the idea is, is if you're somebody and you're exercising at very high levels for a long time, that you're increasing the pressure in the lungs just a little bit and that pushes fluid out and that fluid could squash airways and blood vessels. Mm -hmm. And so over the last 26 years, we have done a number of studies to um, try to prove that that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. And so if that was happening, you'd expect that if people exercised harder, that the um, matching problem of airflow and blood flow would get worse, and it does. They exercise for longer, it gets worse. It's correlated with how high the pressure gets in the lungs if you measure it. If we take people and we exercise them and we image them with our blood flow technique, before we exercise them, we exercise them as hard as they'll go for 45 minutes and then we jam them back in the scanner and we get a bunch of images. It shows that the blood flow is less uniform, consistent with some areas being squashed and some areas being not squashed. Um, and we have a study that just got accepted for publication showing that um, if you take somebody and you image them and then you exercise them and then you image them again, that the part of the lung that gets this disruption in blood flow and airflow blood flow matching is the lung base, okay? So it's the bottom of your lung when you're in upright posture exercising on the bike and that's where we think the pressures are. The, well, that's where we know the pressures are the highest. So it's not the whole lung that gets it, it's the lower part of the lung, and that's also where your lymphatics, so if the, the apex of your lung, the lymphatics are draining downhill, and the base of your lung, they're draining uphill. So not only do we think more fluid accumulates there, but you also aren't draining it as effectively. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean for an athlete's performance? You would expect that high, the highly trained athletes who get exercise-induced arterial hypoxemia would have difficulty in altitude competitions. So if you're a cyclist, a mountain biker, and you're racing in Colorado, you would expect you wouldn't have the same kind of performance in Colorado that you would if you were racing someplace at sea level, Vancouver, North Shore Mountains or something like that. Um, but most athletes that have exercise-induced arterial hypoxemia, they don't even know they have it. Do you do any sports or mountain climbing yourself? Uh, when I was in graduate school, um, I was uh, competing as a cyclist. I had a very understanding PhD supervisor. Um, and so I did um, the 88 and 92 Olympic trials for cycling. Um, and I don't ride a road bike much anymore, but I mountain bike um, regularly. Um, and I rock climb. And I've been a rock climber, well, I first went in the 80s, but more serious rock climber since uh, 1998. So. But I'm very, I am not, my, my mountaineering days and my ski mountaineering days are, are over. I have, um, uh, 
what got me into cycling was tearing my anterior cruciate ligament skiing and as part of my rehab I started riding a bike mm -hmm. and um, I have a, a knee replacement in my future um, so skiing is kind of out yeah but um, rock climbing seems to be good and uh, cycling keeps my knee going do you think about your lung function and gas exchange while you're doing these things no, I just go out and enjoy what I'm doing. Yeah. And one of the things about rock climbing is very compelling. You're not thinking about much else than yeah. what, what is right in front of you. You sometimes can daydream a little bit more on a mountain bike. I don't ride anything hard, so I mostly ride very smooth, single track. But mostly I'm looking at nature. I saw a bobcat once. Well, thank you so much for your time, Susan. It's been really interesting, and good luck as you continue your research. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for joining us on N equals 1. You can find more episodes at health.ucsd.edu forward slash podcast. That's health.ucsd.edu forward slash podcast. Thank you.